You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. We set aside two weeks to talk about this idea of pursuing holiness. Nathan kicked it off last week and he did a great job explaining what makes God holy, why we need him to be holy, because if he's just good by our understanding, it won't work, and that we're called to be holy. Have you ever been trusted with something that had great responsibility? Maybe it's a secret or something of monetary value, and uh, we, we take these things with a certain amount of respect and we hold tightly to them, right? My kids love candy. Especially my baby girl. And uh, they must have got it from their mom because I'm super nutritious, super health-oriented. <laughs> so you guys do listen when I, when I talk. Uh, yeah, I'm a train wreck. I've had four donuts this morning already, so they get it honest. Um, after Halloween last year, they had quite a bit of candy left over. And so we said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to let you take the candy upstairs into your rooms and put it in a drawer. And when you want a piece of candy, then you just got to come ask mom and dad for permission. And then it's up to our discretion if you get a piece of candy. All right, so we trusted them with this responsibility and it seemed to be working out well. But sometimes uh, with responsibility, um, we start to go lax on the rules, don't we? We start to think this. Well, nobody's really going to know if I take one piece of candy, right? No one's ever going to notice it and I just dispose of the wrapper. So about three months ago, I was uh, vacuuming upstairs. Yes, I do vacuum. And uh, men, you should vacuum. Um, I was vacuuming upstairs, and I go in my daughter's room, and on the other side of the bed, I see a trail of candy wrappers. And I'm like following this underneath her bed. It's like just I'm weaving around, and I come to it, and I come to the drawer, and I'm like, I got to look at the drawer, and I open the drawer, and this is what I see. I mean, she just fell off the wagon. She just ate every single piece of candy ever known to man and didn't even dispose of the wrapper, just threw it in there. So when, I get, when she gets home from school, I'm like, baby girl, we, we need to talk. And she comes to me and she's like, well, okay. So I get down on her, you know, d- down where I can look at her face to face. I'm like, I, I found your, uh, your candy drawer. And her eyes get really big and they well up with tears. And I'm like, that's, that's not okay. Like mom and dad trusted you with that. So now you've lost that privilege. We can't trust you to do that anymore. And she starts crying. And, Sorry, Dada. And I hold her. You see, that's who we are. We are prone to receive this most amazing blessing and honor called grace. And at first, we guard it with our hearts and our minds. We remember how unworthy we really are. But as time goes on, we start taking the rules and kind of not paying too much attention to them. We think to ourselves, well, God loves me, so this really won't be a problem. And I'm broken, so sinning is a result of that. And before you know it, we've eaten all the candy in the drawer without ever permission to do so and really without any remorse until we're caught. The rules of God are simple and set up so that we might find freedom from the enslavement of sin, but buried deep within our DNA is brokenness. That brokenness drives us to look past his grace so quite often and choose our own desires instead. I was raised Pentecostal, told you guys that, and uh, my dad's a Pentecostal preacher in the Bible Belt. So if you can understand any of my background, that's where it was. And my grandparents were holiness, oneless Pentecostal, which means women didn't wear makeup, uh, kept their hair in a bun, and they always wore 
a skirt or uh, a dress. I never saw my grandma wear anything but a dress her entire life. And so uh, my parents were strict, but not quite that strict. They didn't, they didn't abide by those rules, but there were definitely a lot of rules. And there was a lot of great things about my foundation years growing up. But as I became a teenager and I started trying to explore this whole thing for myself, there was like this overwhelming feeling that me and all my friends that were at church, we constantly felt like we were going to go to hell. We would rededicate our lives to Christ every single time the church was open because holiness was preached in such a way that it was how you got into heaven by how good you could actually be. We're going to be judged on our actions and our merit on the way home. If you die in a car accident, are you going to go to heaven? That was the mindset that I was raised. I'm not saying that we didn't talk about God's grace. We just were imposed with this idea that we had something to do with receiving his grace by how good we could actually be. So it's the backstory of my life, but I would imagine the backstory of quite a few people who are my age or older who were raised in church. And it probably pushed more people away from God than it ever drew to him. The years went by and we start seeing just how amazing God's grace really is. And we start to think, you know what? On my best day, I can't be good enough for God. But because of Jesus's blood, I don't have to. And so here we are. Then the pendulum swings all the way over to the other side. And here we are in 2016. And there are grace churches everywhere. And they're preaching prosperity and acceptance and love. And all of those things have their place. And all of those things are biblical. But just as hellfire and damnation has twisted the scripture, so has this mindset that God is love, so everything's okay. If there's no penalty for sin, why are we here? Why are we paying tithes to a church? If everything's going to end up, we're all going to be in heaven when it's all said and done. We could just live any way we want, right? Why care? I read an article last week a very prominent uh, NFL quarterback who's a professing Christian. He's done some stuff with Mars Hill Church, and um, he prays after the game. He always gives glory to God. He, he also lives with his fiance. Uh, he has a child out of wedlock. You'll hear some foul language out of his mouth. And then he went to, uh, was going to be getting married in North Carolina, and he canceled their marriage plans because he wants to disagree with the idea of traditional bathrooms, male and female. So he's going to stick it to the man, right? The problem is he's telling everyone who's not a believer that if you're a Christian, you can just do whatever you want. You can abide by your own rules. Are there repercussions for that behavior? There are churches that preach sin is no longer sin, and yet the word of God does not say that. There are churches that will tell you that all you have to do is just love people and live life with them and never point them to the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. Now, look, I'm a, I'm a firm believer. I preach that we should love people and just live life with them. But there's going to come a point where they're gonna, God's going to open up the door for us to tell them about the good news. We have to tell them about the good news. There are actual preachers that are preaching there is no literal hell in Christian churches. What in the world's going on? How do we go from Turner Burn bumper stickers to this idea that God is love, so everything is okay. Do whatever you want. They're both extremely diseased with this ability to destroy from within. It's a good news, bad news kind of morning. I usually like to have the bad news up front so that I can end with good news and walk away happy. The, the bad news is you're not good enough for God. 
And if you're new here and you're visiting and you're like, you're an idiot, I'm not even disagree that I'm an idiot. But here's the good news. You're not good enough for God. And it's okay because he's good enough on his own. God's grace, from my understanding, seems to make no sense. It carries no weight for us to grab a hold of, and yet we reap all of the benefit. And I'm not really sure how big God's grace is. I'm confident it's bigger than what we deserve. I don't pretend to have all the answers. I'm a wretched sinner, like every one of us, but I do believe somewhere between the pendulum of pitiful people in the hands of an angry God and all the way over here that says God is love, so everything's okay, do whatever you want that the truth is waiting to be found and preached and lived. We're not good enough, we'll never be, and that's why we need a savior. So trying to find the truth in the midst of society telling us one thing and even churches telling us another thing and other churches telling us, it's just tough, you get frustrated. And so we have to just look at scripture and see what scripture says. So please hear my heart this morning. This is not me trying to say, follow me, I'm good. Don't follow me. I'm just saying we need to make sure that we read the entire book and that we understand what Jesus has called for us. I want to take a few minutes just look at these two opposing views this morning. Paul spends the entire book of Galatians debunking the idea that we have something to do with our salvation. Do you remember he calls Peter out in front of the Jews because when Peter was with the Gentiles, he was just living free and he knew everything was great. He was covered by God's grace. But when he got around the Jews, he felt like he had to start abiding the way the Jews wanted to abide, which they wanted to revert back to Judaism. Paul's like, no, 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 dude, stop that. You're only saved by God's grace. You had nothing to do with this. Stop acting like you're earning it. And then Jesus was consistently frustrated with the Pharisees because of a similar mindset. And that mindset was, if I can just keep the law and do everything right, then I'll be justified by God, which made sense because it was Judaism. But Jesus said that can't bring you freedom. There's no law that brings freedom. Jesus came down and died for us because he loved us that much. So this idea of constantly falling from grace is just insecurities from sinful people trying to justify their own hidden sins. But then the flip side of the coin is we look at this grace movement that says God's grace will cover my sins. And listen to me, church, God's grace is sufficient for all. But this is not an area in which the church needs to know partial truth. This is an area we need to know the entire truth because it has eternal implications that are connected to it. So my prayer this morning is, God, that we would know the truth, the whole truth, and truly nothing but the truth. I had a professor in college argue with me that God isn't dualistic, meaning black and white. He said that God has a lot of gray areas. And I said, well, I will agree that God, or there's many ways to interpret the Bible, which usually is a heart matter. But I disagree that God, who is absolute, has gray areas. His yes is his yes, his no is his no. He does not change. And so the scripture has stood out to me for many, many, many years. And so... I think it's applicable to the church even today. This is Revelation 3, 15 and 16. It says, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So Jesus is talking to the church of Laodicea and he said, listen, it's not okay for you to straddle the fence and be one foot in the world and one foot in with God. That's not okay. He says, I wish you would be one or the other. 
And I thought that was interesting. Why would he think that would be better? It's one thing, like, to be on fire for God, that makes sense. But why would he say it'd be better for you to be cold, never professing him? I think it's this. At least you're being honest with yourself. At least you're saying, I'm really not going to follow this thing. I'm really not going to buy into this Christianity. And while that seems like a horrible idea, the second point comes into play. We start professing Christ and still live like the world as if God's grace is some sort of gumball machine. And then our lives, as Nathan said last week, it's a banner for everyone to see. It just starts screaming hypocrisy, which always leads people down the wrong road. But here in America, and especially in the Bible Belt, where everyone believes in God, we've decided to do this. We've decided to forge our own road. Smack dab in the middle of what Jesus talked about in Matthew 7. He said, enter through the narrow gate, For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus said there's a wide road that's going to lead to destruction, and then there's a narrow road that's going to lead to me. And instead of choosing either one of them, we as a society, we as a country, we have just decided, even some of the churches have decided, we're just going to forge our own road right in the middle that kind of looks a little bit like both. We'll call this the politically correct road, if you will. God forbid that someone would be offended by his word. The mega pastors who are preaching that it's all about making the most of this life and not ever telling anybody else about the rest of the story. I believe they've distorted the truth and millions of people they'll be accountable for. I heard a mega pastor say he wouldn't take a stance on a major moral issue outside of his church in hopes that those people would still come so he could tell them about God. I get the mindset. I truly understand that. But here's the deal. The word of God is offensive for sinners, including me. It does not feel good to my flesh. I never am like, oh, I can't wait to read the scripture and remind myself of how broken I really am. It's not the church's responsibility to pick and choose what the most politically correct version of the Bible is. It's the church's responsibility to preach the word of God. Untainted, unapologetic, and with the heart of God that says, I died for you. All you have to do is repent and follow me, and I will give you everything. I don't care how big someone's church is. If they have chosen not to tell the whole story, I believe that they will be held accountable for that. The word, is God, the word of God is messy for sinners like ourselves. Jesus goes on to say a few verses later in Revelation 3.19, he says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and say this with me and repent. It's so simple. I would be remiss not to talk a little bit about the wrath of God this morning. And it's not something that I was like, hey, sign me up. I can't wait to talk about that. But it's part of the Bible. And as one of the pastors of this church, it's my responsibility to give the entire thing a listen. We've either talked about the wrath of God too much or not enough. And somewhere down the middle of the road that we've crafted, we have figured out or forgotten, maybe I should say, that the same God that destroyed the entire earth The same God that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot's wife. 
The same God that after the new covenant had been established, Jesus had died for our sins, grace was abounding, killed two people in the book of Acts because they lied about their tithing and what they brought to the church. That same God is still God. He didn't change. Yet he's still the same God that said, I love you so much, I'll literally send my son down and die for you and give you another chance. But just because the blood of Jesus is alive and still saves does not mean that God no longer has wrath. There are too many scriptures that point out just how scary it really is when you think about a God that you can't control. As Nathan said last week, an apple terms kind of God that his word says will not be mocked. The writer of Hebrews writes some of the scariest, it's like the scariest passage in the entire Bible. And I'm not reading it to scare you. I'm reading it to make sure that we've all read the entire story and not just the part that feels good. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? who is treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that sanctified them and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said it is mine to revenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, that's not fun to talk about, is it? That's not a fun scripture. And I think we got to look at it like the, the key is, do we deliberately keep on sinning? Look, sin is in our DNA. We're going to make mistakes. And there's going to be moments in our life where we choose sin. We deliberately go against God's will. But if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ and you know that, then the Holy Spirit gets imparted inside of you. And he immediately convicts you. You'll know it's wrong. Even if you continue to do it, you know it's wrong. It does not go away. That Holy Spirit will let you know when you get to that place where you're like, I can't keep doing this. I cannot keep doing this, God. Forgive me. You get back on the road and move forward. The writer of Psalms said he remembers our framework that it was merely dust. He's not expecting greatness from us. He's expecting repentance from us. So if we get to a place as believers, as a society, that we say, you know what? I don't really care what the word of God says across the board. What I like is that God is love. That's it. And everything's going to be okay. And we just forge this road right down in the middle. I think we're opening ourselves up to fall into the hands of the living God. Because we are holding contempt. The blood of the covenant is unholy and the insulting the spirit of grace. But that's not a fun conversation, is it? This isn't a good politically correct sermon. This isn't everyone receives a participation trophy kind of service, is it? But it's the word of God. I'm not making it up. So what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say our lives should look like? Right, if we're followers of him, it seems like whatever he said, we should try to follow. We say this a lot, John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He said in John 8, 11, when he kept the woman caught in adultery, he says, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. So, so far he's told us to follow him by, by following his commandments, doing things that are right, and leave our life of sin. He then said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, which means deny their flesh. That fleshly desire that is 
opposed to what he wants. We've got to d- deny that. Take up their cross daily and follow me. The rich young ruler in Matthew and Mark came to Jesus and said, what do I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? He says, here's all the things you do. And he's like, I do all those. He said, you got one more. Go sell everything you have and follow me. And then in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus has called us to follow him. So if he who knew no sin is asking for us to follow him, he's going a certain direction, right? There's no way that direction leads to sin, ever. It always, always, always is going to lead to a life of holiness. When we give our hearts to God, we turn from the life that we once lived, and we now start playing by different rules. But here's where we kind of get off track. Instead of living by holiness, we start to live in a pursuit of happiness. We stop actually following after Christ and we start distorting what his word says to fit our own agenda. And we start by one piece of candy at a time thinking it's not a big deal. He'll never see it. But you can't hide anything from God. He sees everything. Paul said it's not by works that we're saved, right? So we should be good. problem is we've forgotten the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin is death, and only by Jesus' blood are we covered. So if we have chosen to not actually follow what Jesus said, and we've forged our own road, does the blood of Christ cover that? It's not really following him. And I'm not talking about falling short. Look, we're all going to fall short. Romans 8.23 says we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're going to make mistakes. We're prone to sin. It's in our DNA. It's more of a mindset that says, you know what? I don't care what scriptures say. This is what I believe at this point in time. We don't get to do that. And here's why. Let me explain why. After Jesus was talking on the Sermon on the Mount and he told them, wide is the road that leads to destruction and narrow is the road that leads to me, that leads to life. He goes on and says this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, he's, he's referring to the day of judgment. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. The scripture should scare everyone of us, not from a turn or burn, but just it tells us that just because we profess his name does not mean we follow him. So an honest, honest question, guys. How does grace overrule this passage of Scripture? The one talking is grace. He is grace. It only came through Jesus. And he said, I will look at you on that day and say, I didn't even know you. It's not to scare you. It's to to figure out we can't just profess the name and act like everything is okay. There has to be something more. There has to be repentance. There has to be some sort of tree that produces some sort of fruit that looks like Christ. And he's not asking for us to be perfect. He knows our limitations. He knows we're going to fall. He's asking for us to try. 
The Bible says King David was quick to repent. He knew his limitations. He knew his brokenness. He didn't stay there. He got on his knees and asked for forgiveness, and he got right back in standing with God, and he did some amazing things that God used him to do. He's called us to follow him, and if we're truly following him, it won't look like the world. And I don't know where the line gets crossed and God's grace gets insulted. I really don't know. But I don't think that should ever be on the mind of the follower of Christ. How can I profess Christ but then live opposite of that? It doesn't really add up to a follower. Our question should be every single morning, Lord, will you give me the strength to fight the evil one? Will you give me the strength to be able to fight my own flesh that wants to do things not your way so that I can do things your way? He's not called us to look crazy like John the Baptist in the wilderness. He's just called us to follow him. So here's the good news. As heavy as this message is, here's the good news. Paul said in Romans 8 that he said, I am convinced. I'm convinced that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ for those of us who are covered by his grace. Convinced. The wrath of God is scary. But I'm not the least bit scared. I'm covered by that amazing grace that flows so freely, that covers my sins and everyone who else who comes to that fountain, asks for forgiveness and starts following him is covered by that same amazing grace. And the truth is he knows my heart. He knows I want to bring him glory. He knows that. So it's a heavy message, but not for those who are justified by grace. It's an exciting message for us because we get to stand face to face with the king in all his glory. At the beginning of Romans 8, Paul says this, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't stand condemned. And yet I'm broken and yet I'm flawed, but I don't stand condemned because that's the amazing grace that God's talking Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So if you're trying your best, I promise you, he knows. And if you're playing church with one foot in the world and one foot in church, he knows. It's crazy to me that we think, and it's just the pride within our own selves, it's just sin that we think that we can hide something from God. He sees everything. He knows everything. So the greatest thing we can ever do is just be honest with him. He knows our limitations. And I wonder why even consider a middle road when he's given us the ability to be free from sins if we just would start every single day off with, God, will you give me the power and the strength to fight the temptations of this world? We're going to fall. We're going to fail. And there's going to be times and there's going to be moments in our life that we're going to feel like failures. And yet he knows our heart that we're trying. And his grace comes in like a rushing wave that just covers us. That's the amazing grace that we sing about.
That's the amazing grace that gives us hope. Do you know that amazing grace this morning? If you do, I ask that you just start praying for those who don't. If you've been playing a game, if you forged your own road right down the middle of what Jesus said not to do, he made it really simple. It's so simple. In Revelations, he just said, repent. Like the grace of God is that amazing. It just continues to want to give. We just have to bring our brokenness and ask him to forgiveness. And as long as you have a breath in your body, you still have a chance to meet the creator of the world and spend eternity with him. That's amazing. Amazing grace. Won't you bow with me and close your eyes? Father, we come to you uh, humbled, Lord, that you've called us, that you have uh, beckoned us to hear your truth. Lord, I pray that we would all leave here better than we came, knowing more about your word, not just taking what we think is your word, but truly looking at your word, dissecting it, putting it into our lives so that we could all become more like you. And when we become more like you, people will see that and lives will change, Lord. Lord, I pray for those in here who haven't been honest with themselves. They haven't been honest with God. That your Holy Spirit would convict them, that bring them back home so that they can stand in front of the judgment room and not feel contempt. Lord, we want to do your will. I pray that you would be glorified here at this church and through my life. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. We're going to go in and we're going to sing a song. We're going to sing an old hymn. It's called I Exalt Thee. It's one of my favorite older songs. I remember growing up singing it. I just want to encourage you just to sing praise to this king who gave you freedom. Because the pridefulness of humanity sometimes thinks we deserved it. We don't deserve it. He's just that good. So when you sing this morning, sing from your heart. Give him praise. He is worthy to be praised. If you've been playing games, there'll be people up here that would love to pray with you. We're not gonna smack you on your your wrist. We just wanna help you go through this life together. And sometimes accountability is one of the greatest things that we can ever get. Guys, I truly love you. Thank you for the grace of hearing a heavy message this morning. May we live out his truth. Won't you stand up?